Okay, sorry about that. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, blessed, better than we deserve? Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Titus. We are and have come as far as chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. Well, that brings us to Titus, and it's a perfect opportunity because that's exactly what's on Titus's heart. Um, Paul speaking to Titus, he had gone to this island of Crete, uh, where if you look back in your Bibles in chapter 1 at verse 12, I mean, I, you know, I read these things. Uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And I, I'm like, that's a really great way to start this conversation out, Titus. Um, but that's what they were known for, right? You know, I, I think of us here, you know, I pray we're known for something different, right? He was talking to the church, right? He was in, this is what the Cretans and also uh, even on that island. And it's interesting because what I love about the grace of God is that he goes before them and he doesn't say, you know, when you guys finally arrive and you stop sinning and everything is right, then and only then will I start to allow you to appoint elders and to work through you. He doesn't do that. God is so gracious. He meets us right where we are. So gracious. And that's what he does. In the, in the book of Titus, Paul is writing to this pastor that he sent to create, to not only bring the word of God, because Paul had planted that church, but to bring order. And I said this in the past, you know, as pastors, we don't get to stand up here and choose what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. We really, really don't. God has been very specific in the book of Titus as well as Timothy in the pastoral epistles to tell us it's sound doctrine. It's the word of God that needs to go forward. And then he also tells us the conduct and the different things. And we're going to read a little bit about that today. But he told Titus, he says, when you get there, he says, I want you to appoint elders, overseers, leaders, pastors that are going to help oversee this church. And he, he begins to do that. And then, of course, again, because God is an, a God of order and conduct, 1 Corinthians 14.40, he turns around and says, and for this reason, this is what it needs to look like. Here are the qualifications. It's not just any man or any situation like that. It's, no, there's qualifications. Here's the aim. These are the things we're looking for. You know, he says, faithful, right? Not insubordinate, right? Not, you know, not self-willed, not given to wine, right? Not greedy for money. He goes on and he lists these qualifications out here. And the reason he does that is because the stakes are high. And then he, he proceeds in verse 10 to go, and, and please recognize this with me. He says, for there are many. He tells us why he's laying these qualifications out. He says, there's many that are insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So now he starts to bring it home here for us and understand what was going on. He starts to teach us here, just as it was 2,000 years ago, it's no different today. He's talking to the church. He wasn't talking to the world. I think if every one of us read this and didn't understand this in context of a pastoral epistle, we would think he's talking to the world. But he's talking to the church. And he's saying to them that there's insubordinate there's rebels in the church. He says there's idle talkers. They're going through and raising up their own doctrines, their own imaginations, their own fables. And there's even those that have come back and said, Jesus Christ alone is not enough. Jewish, you know, men that had gotten saved, but they had brought the legal with, legalism into the church. And that was wrecking men and women. And so he calls it out. He says, their mouths must be stopped. 
God has no appetite for that in the body of Christ. He loves us tremendously. He's got no appetite for people teaching an alternate doctrine, an alternate word, for man's wisdom, for all these other things. You see, God made it so beautiful and simple. And then I love that he, like I said, he left that verse 12, and that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. You know, it doesn't matter how depraved we are, because we are, aren't we? We're carnal. I'm carnal. I'll speak for me. It doesn't matter how depraved we are in that regard that the Lord seeks to save and to sanctify. And there's nobody that's off that list. There's nobody that's disqualified from that. Just, just try to sort of rest there for a minute in that. That each and every one of us, no, no matter the things we've done in our past, no matter the way we've blown it, that our God is open-armed, desiring for us to come in, embrace him in pure and beautiful relationship, to love us, to cast out our fears, our anxieties, our sadness, our sorrows, and to enlarge our hearts to know him and to make him known. All because he loves us. And it's with that we're going to pray and jump right into chapter 2 where he's going to continue on this. And now he's going to move into the practical. He's going to move into chapter 2 of the sound doctrine and healthy doctrine. He's going to use that term. Father, we come before you and, Lord, we need to hear these things. Every one of us needs to understand the practicality of these things that you're going to lay out before us. Lord, we desire we desire in maturity and in soberness and temperance and vigilance, Lord, to be these men and, and, and the women, Lord, to be those women that, that truly honor your name in sound faith and love. God, I pray you will go before us this morning and open our hearts and our eyes and show us all that you want to minister and speak to us to teach us, to equip us, to encourage us, Lord, and, and even if needed, convict us, Lord. God, we don't want to walk halfway or play Christian or church here, Lord. We want to do it your way. We want to live completely for you. We want to be conformed into your likeness and image. And we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, start now. Start here. Start with your word. We open our hearts. We open our minds. Lord, come in and sup with us. Speak to us this morning through the leading of your Holy Spirit and do a work, Lord, that will last eternity. We pray and ask this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. He begins and says, but... As for you, now this is interesting because he's going to move here, like I said, into the practicality. He's going to begin with older men, and he's going to talk about younger men. He's going to be, begin with older women. He's going to talk about younger women. I am not going to define here this morning who the older man is and who's the younger man. I'm not going to define who the older women are and who the younger women. That's in you and Jesus. However you see yourself in that, amen, I'm with you, all right? I'm with you. But as for you, he's saying, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That's a command. That's a command, pastor. It's not what you want to teach. It's not what you want to tell them. It's not what you think is a good idea. You preach the word. Why? 
Because you see that word there, proper? In the Greek, it means so much more than what we would think is something of proper. What it's actually saying here is it's talking about this idea of allowing one to become fit. You're being made fit right now. I know that sounds odd. You came in here this morning, you're open your Bibles, but God is doing a supernatural work in you and he is conforming you and making you fit. Now, he says fit to what? Well, and by what? He says by sound doctrine. That word sound isn't just, well, good doctrine, but the word of God actually is considered a work of health within the spirit. If I can use a sort of physiological explanation for this or physiology, the idea of if you were sick, you would go to a doctor to be made well. Yes, amen, you understand that? You'd pray and go to a doctor. Okay, what he's talking about here now is that the word of God is health to your bones and your spirit. He says that's what's happening right now. You're getting a checkup, if I can say it that way. You're getting your checkup for the morning, okay? You're coming in, and he's doing this work. And as he does this work, you're actually not just staying where you were, how you came in this morning. But even when you leave here, whether you recognize it or not, you're different. When you walk out of here, even if you didn't understand a lick, which I pray that's not the case, but even if you didn't get a lick of it, when you walk out of here, you are different. Because God has done a work in your spirit because the word of God has gone forward and that has done the work of, like a doctor, health. It has changed, is conformed, it is encouraged, it is equipped, it has lifted you up. It has made you fit. Fit for what? Fit for the kingdom of God? Fit as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Fit as a Christian, one known as a beloved of Jesus? Yes. All across the board. Yes. But as for you, Titus, speak these things which are proper, which are becoming. It's the word it's using, allowing to become fit. Becoming. It's, it's it, Every time we read the Bible, you know, there's so much pressure put on pastors today. So many churches to turn around because they've read the Bible. You know, we've been in this seven years now. We're, we're not full, through the whole Bible yet. I think we need another three. Maybe in three, we'll talk about another two. Well, you know, the Lord should tarry. But when you go line by line and you get all the meat off the bone, it takes time because the Lord's doing a uh, supernatural work through the Spirit. But uh, if the Lord should tarry another three years and we get through even more of Scripture or the whole Bible, there's a temptation for pastors to say, well, boy, everybody here sat through the Bible now. What do we do? And there's this desire where they want to go and they, they try to find something new in Scripture because they're afraid. Many of them, they're afraid to come back and read the Bible again. It's so wonderful that in chapter 3, we're going to get there, uh, Lord willing, next week. He'll say, remind. We're going to celebrate communion also. It's perfect and fitting. Remember. The idea is, is there's nothing new. You know, in seminary, they teach you in, through certain subjects something called textual criticism. Some of you heard that, textual criticism. It's where you go through Scripture, and I remember taking a class in it, and, and you're looking for areas to further research or looking for areas to further the, 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 the discipline of what you've already been studying in the Word of God. And I remember talking with the professors that was happening. I said, what more am I ever going to see? The, my Bible tells me that Jesus Christ has given the full revelation through all 66 books of the Bible. 
other than maybe a word of knowledge or prophecy or something like that, what more am I going to ever further what God is? He, this is complete. It's complete. It's profitable already. And the professor didn't have an answer for that. So I finished the class, and I was, what, more, what more was I going to gain in that? I mean, now you know why they called, you know, seminary cemeteries, right? Because it's a dying breed. It's a dying art. Nothing wrong with education, please. I'm not saying there's anything wrong studying the word Greek, Hebrew, um, you know, German, all of that. Very, very important. But not in a way that you think you're going to somehow come at this and see something that God hasn't already given you when the blinders fell, when you you were born again. You see, there's a pressure on the pastors today, especially in some of these larger churches. Even as we're growing, there's a, a pressure to... Oh, we got, do we, do we, what are we going to do to entertain the people? What are we going to do to keep the people engaged? And my Bible tells me in Acts 2.42, they gathered together in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, in prayer, and fellowship. God added to the church 3,000 that day. The Bible also teaches me that some plant, some water, but God be to the what? Increase. Do you want a good church growth plan? Read the Bible, line by line and verse by verse, and you'll never have to worry about growing a church. God will do that because people are hungry for truth, and they'll come in to learn more about Jesus and to experience more of Jesus. And that's exactly the idea here being spoken to Titus. Titus, I know these are Cretans. I I know that they're, they're liars, they're evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. We don't have to apologize for the Holy Spirit. We don't have to apologize for Apostle Paul. He's saying it like it is. That's how they were known. But in spite of all that, God loves each and every one of them, and he has a word for them. Come home. Come home. All you that are weary and heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you rest. He continues on and says... And then he goes in and he's, he's going to speak now how this happens. He's going to actually speak to what the power of the word of God does. He goes on and he's going to start with older men. Again, I'm not defining that here, okay? I, I sometimes put myself in that category. And then I talk to some of my friends here that are 80 plus years old. And they remind me that, you know, you're a young whippersnapper kind of thing. And I'm like, I guess it's relative to the age. But, but uh, sometimes it's not, the, it's not just the years, it's the mileage, amen? So he goes in and he says that the older men be sober. Now this word sober, if you're looking for it in your margins, it means vigilant. It doesn't mean without drink. He'll talk about that, but here he's speaking to calmness. He's speaking to temperance. This is what happens in a mature man in Christ. As time goes on, as they become mature by the reading of the word, that there becomes this soberness that way. And it means that they're vigilant, they're calm, they're temperate. You know, I, I could think to myself, and I, I'm just going to pick on me for a minute. Um, I know I have a long way to go in this, but I, I uh, pray for me in that regard. But I think of when I was younger, you know, uh, many of you know, I was a hockey player. I loved playing hockey and uh, yeah, on the ice, um, things happen. You're in a game and uh, as a defenseman, you play, it's a job. You know, you you getting paid or you competitive. You're you're it's a job, okay? And you're there to you're there to do what you're there to do. And um, you know, sometimes uh, emotions get high. You know, you, you get a little hot under the collar. Things happen. Maybe the game's not being called as fairly as you'd like. Um, different things going on, and you can get a little hot under the collar. And sometimes that leads to what we know as uh, some of you've seen hockey games. What do they do? We're dropping the 
gloves. You guys know it. Dropping the gloves. Some of you are like, man. And, you know, that's why it kind of, you know, lasts for about a minute. Maybe if you get a good one, two or three minutes. But, and then what happens? And then it's all done. It's all out. Why? Because when you're young, you're full of all that vinegar, if I can say it that way. You got all that testosterone. You got all that, oh, I'm going to get, you know. And then as you get a little bit older in Christ and a little bit more mature, there's a certain level of calmness that comes in. That, that when something, a uh, circumstance ha- happens, something that would normally shake you to your core, you, you're like, wait a minute, let's just pray. Wait a minute, let's, let's take it easy. We're not going to respond. I, I know they just did that to you. I know this just happened. Slow down. Let's, let's bring some calmness to the situation, some temperance. Let's put on Christ. Let's respond to people in love with truth. Right? That's what he's talking about here. That's what the word of God does. It brings temperance. And it's one of the characteristics that we look at and see in older men that are under the word of God. They demonstrate that. I mean, some of you men here this morning, I don't think I'm speaking out of school in this. I think if you look to back 50, 40, 30 years ago, and you might think about how you'd approach a situation of somebody that maybe disagrees with you compared to how you might approach them today, it's different, isn't it? Maybe not so quick to win the battle but lose the fight or vice versa, play it again. You get the point? That's what he's saying. That's what happens in the heart, when God does that work, he brings a temperance. That's why on boards or in churches, or it's good to have older men, men that have wisdom that are bringing these things in here. Also, we see the next thing is reverent, right? Now, this isn't, uh, you know, I'm not one for, I've, I've heard people call uh, men in uh, churches uh, Reverend, or I, I, I find that as an oxymoron, you know, kind of like a, a complete opposite of a true. There is no man that's uh, revered. Jesus Christ alone is revered. Okay, that's, that's my, my heart and take on that. All right? But what I will say about that is, is what we see here when it comes to older men, we also see this idea of respect versus honor. The Bible tells us clearly we're to honor our parents, our mothers and fathers. We're to honor men, right? In this particular context, we're going to see a little bit here as we read about older women. We're to honor women. But the Bible never once called us to respect somebody that wasn't worthy of respect. The Bible never called us to turn around and, and put somebody in a, in a reverent place that their character doesn't demonstrate reverence. That's the difference between honor and respect. Respect is because you look at someone's character and they honor I'm going to use that word. I shouldn't use that word because I'm using it in my illustration. They're going to turn around and demonstrate the very attributes of Jesus Christ through them. You know, long-suffering, love, patient, truth, you know, those kind of things. It, it, it exudes out of their pores. Some of you are Italian like me. You know what exudes out of your pores normally is garlic, right? A little olive oil and garlic, right? You appreciate But we're talking about... We're talking about Jesus Christ exuding out of the pores that way. Do you, do you understand the intimacy of that? He lives in you. Is he exuding out of you? Something you can't hide, huh? You have a good, a good uh, pasta meal. You make, I make you a pasta visual. I put a little garlic in it for you, dried beans, macaroni, soup, maybe so on what that is. And we turn around and we have that, right? You're going to walk away. You're going to go brush your teeth. Oh, I got a little garlic. You're going to brush your teeth. Great. The next day, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be around people. Do you have garlic today? 
Why? Because it's going to exude from your pores, like garlic bread or anything else, right? Is Jesus Christ exuding, coming forth from our pores? That's the idea here. Because that, that right there is, and draws us to respect. We have respect for that older man when we see him embody Jesus Christ that way. I don't mean physically, but I mean spiritually, because he's a vessel. Then he also says temperate, right? This word here, interesting word. Um, the idea is that they're serious-minded. You know, when you're dealing with very, very heavy things and you come to this older man, you don't want him clowning around, joking around, or acting uh, the hypocrite in that moment. You want a shoulder to cry on. You want someone to lean on and to be able to say, what am I going to do in this situation? You want somebody tempered. It tells us also sound in faith. The idea here is this is a person, this older man, he, because of the word of God going forward and constantly being washed by the word, he, he's, trust has been settled and, and, and truth has been settled in his life. Sound in faith, health in faith. Remember, sound in scripture often means health. Health to his faith. It's strengthened by his faith, faith to faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord or the word of God. Next, we see love. This is the word agape. It's unconditional love. It's not a conditional love like a, like a phileo or, 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 or sorge or, or any of the other Greek. I use five of them in the Greek to explain love because scripture uses many different uh, Greek terms for love. He's talking about agape, unconditional love, not conditioned by any other situation. That's the love Jesus Christ has for you and I. And the love that we see in an older man when he has been matured in Christ he puts his hand around his brother, his younger son, his brother, his old, you know, even older, and he, he earns the right to invest in his life. He doesn't just thump him with the Bible. He doesn't say, you're wrong. He turns around and says, you know, come here, sit next to me. I love you, man. He said, let's talk about this. And he earns the right through love, unconditional love. How many of you want to be corrected by somebody that doesn't really give a darn about you? Not one of us in here. Not one of us that way. You, and you got the baloney meters just like I got them. You know when somebody's truly invested in your life and when somebody's going through the motions. Titus, don't do that. Pastors, don't do that. The Holy Spirit, you come alongside this person in love. And it must be unconditional love. That is what is asked. That is the bar that God in Christ has set. He goes in in patience, love and patience. What's, what's that mean? That means love also, not just like I love you the moment, but then I don't love you. That wouldn't be unconditional, would it be? No, it would be conditioned on your feeling, emotion, circumstance. He says, no. He also says, in patience. This word in the Greek here, it implies steadfastness, endurance. You know, Paul talks a lot about running races and the endurance of a race. It's hard to love someone, if we're being honest, when they continue to kick against the goads. When, when you try to... To, to tell them, you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. And your natural inclination sometimes in your heart is you, you can grow cold and say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. And that's not what God wants us to do, is it? He wants us to have endurance. He wants us to have a love that doesn't flee because they're turning around and, and well, I'm going to use a Christianese term. It's not a biblical term, but backslidden. He never told us to love the sin. Never once in scripture did he ever tell you to compromise with sin, nor am I. But we're always to love the vessel. Because each individual person 
is a creation of God. And for that alone, they are special. On top of that, a born-again believer in Christ is a child of God. Again, for that alone, they are special. And if they choose to walk contrary to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of the Lord, that doesn't make them less special. You know what that makes them like? You and I. You and I. Because there's not a single person here this morning that's arrived. There's not a single person this morning that walked in here without sin. There's not a single person here this morning that hasn't blasphemed God to some extent by misrepresenting him. Our love doesn't change. Our love needs endurance. It needs to be steadfast. We need to love them back to Jesus. And that's hard because it comes at a personal cost to you and I, doesn't it? Because it hurts in the pit of your stomach, in your heart, when you watch a child or a loved one, a family member, a husband, a wife, a parent, a niece, a nephew, a friend, go through something so traumatic, so hurtful that they're destroying their lives. It's a downward spiral. You're watching it. Don't do this. Don't do this. And they proceed on. Stop. Stop. And they keep going, blowing through the signs, blowing through the warnings to the point of where you just start leaning over. There's sometimes I go home and I get home, my wife, I walk through the door and she just knows I need some time. And I just go in there, I'm just, oh, I'm, 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 I'm wrecked. You, you do that too. I know you do that too here. You, you don't play church or Christian here. These are your brothers and sisters. You have friends outside, in the church outside. You, you know, every one of us knows somebody that's struggling, that's, that's walking contrary to the word of God. And it, it, Titus, Titus, have patience and love for that person. You don't just disqualify them and get rid of them. No, you manage them back to Christ. Employers, bosses, people of supervisors here, you manage them up. You try not to have to manage them out. But that takes a certain quality, a certain maturity, and that can only be done through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Because my flesh, your flesh, is going to have really strong opinions on that. Again, I'm not saying Jesus Christ is telling us to condone. No, we need to say you're living in sin. And because of that, I, I'm sorry. I, there are certain things I can and can and will not do. I'm not going to go with you to this place. I'm not going to engage in these things. No, I won't do it. For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But if you ever want to talk, if you ever want to, if you ever want to come together that way, I will. I'll always be available. I'll be one phone call away, or better yet, I'll check in on you and say, how are you doing today? Don't forget, Jesus loves you. That's what he's telling Titus here. So he's telling the pastor. They may be, and the, and the older man, this is what, what he should see there that way, right? The older woman, now he's going to move to the older woman. Again, I, 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 I'm, I'm well taught enough to know, never ask a woman her age. Uh, my mama taught me that at a very young age. You get a quick backhand, you know, in my family growing up. You learn what to say and what not to say. I remember one time, how old's grandma? No. No. Grandma's perpetually 30. Don't you ever think likewise. No, I, I, 
I, to be honest with you, until she passed away, I never knew my grandmother's age. It was just always a respect, and I was always raised that way. You never ask a woman her age that way. Likewise, that they would be what? Reverent. Like the same thing. It's that honor versus reverent. Mothers, all mothers in here, you, God has commanded that you are honored. Older women, you are honored. You are a woman adorned. You are honored by Christ. But there's a difference between honor and respect. Are you living a life, older women, that puts you in a place where you exhume, like we talked about earlier, the garlic, I'll give you the example. Jesus, are you living a way that when people look at you, they see Jesus Christ? You may be the only epistle they ever read. Is you. And therefore, respect and willing and deserving of respect. They must be respected, these older women. In behavior. Now, before I go on to this list, it's important to set the context of the time. Even 2,000 years ago, it's, it's important to set the context. Uh, many women at that time, very rare was it a woman that went outside the home to work. It did happen, but very, very rare. Most of the women worked in the home. Notice I said worked in the home. I got corrected on that 20-something plus years ago in marriage. I remember coming home, and I was, uh, uh, you know, saying, oh, so we were at a, talking to somebody, and I remember I came home talking to my wife, and they said, oh, what is it, what's the person doing? I said, oh, they, you know, they, they stay at home, and, you know, they, uh, they're stay-at-home uh, mom or, or wife. I forget how I said it to the point. And I said, yeah, he works. And she looked at me because my wife we were, was blessed to be able to stay home and, and raise the children and do things like that. And uh, she looked at me. She said, you know, that's work. And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it couldn't have been like a month later. Or Laura, she got uh, sick with a cold or a flu or something. And I, you know, by the grace of God, I didn't get it. So I'm, I'm going to take care of the, the kids and the fan, the whole care. Hey. I was pleading. I was like, Jesus, please get her well. Get her well, Lord, please. I mean, I think I made it two days. Not only was I playing get her well because I wanted her well, but I, I looked at her. I, I tell you what, I said, Lisa, I forgive me. God forgive me. What was I ever thinking? The, I had no idea between the groceries, the, the, the sink, the bathtub, all the things that were cleaned in the house. And, uh, the children were actually dressed. They don't just do, they don't wake up that way. You know, they, they don't come, they come down in food and you have to cook for them. You know, they're not just making you breakfast. And, you know, all this stuff going on. I sat there and I just, I was blown away. And I started to understand, this is, this is amazing. It's beyond what I've ever done. And I'm not just saying that to say that. I mean it. I, I experienced it. And she says, that was just a glimpse. I was like, oh, you know, kind of shuddered. I was like, never again. No, no, I started learning maybe to help out when I'd come into the house. You know, maybe I could do the dishes or, you know, mop the floor or get one of the kids to do it. You know, let's be honest. Delegation is also a gift of administration. Forgive me, still pray for me. I'm a work in progress. Just like you. <laughs> Well, so he says to the older women, that's the context, okay? It was not common in that day. So nothing, nothing unbiblical about a woman working or co-laboring that way, nothing. But he, he goes back and he's going to explain because it's very clear from Genesis 126, 127, God created the male and female in the image of, of Jesus Christ, in the image of God. There is no better or worse. It's not men are better, women are better. No, this is not an equality issue. That was settled back in Genesis. What this is, is a responsibility or a gifting, 
you know, uh, no matter how much I want to have a baby myself in a womb, which I don't have, it's not going to happen. That's a beautiful blessing and privilege. I'll never know what it feels like. I remember when, you know, Parker's my, my oldest, you know, I would lay him sometimes. Some of you guys probably know, you get the baby home. And I remember laying him right on my chest, flesh on flesh, you know, just to feel his heat, for him to feel the heat, him to feel the heat from me. Just that, that baby on me, you know, I, this is powerful. I can't imagine what it would be like to have that living, precious gift of God living inside of you. I, I can't even imagine with the, you know, poof, poof. I used to watch Lisa, the belly, you know, these little bumps here and there. I'd be sleeping at night. Like, I felt like he was, you know, hitting me on the, wake up, dad, hit, you know. I mean, he would literally, and I, it, it's so miraculous. I'll never know what that feels like to have a living, knit, beautifully made creation of God living inside of me that way. That is a privilege and a gift that women were given by God. And likewise, women may never know certain offices and or like a pastor. That's solely for men. That's just something that men are, women, yeah, women may not know certain things that guys are to understand biologically and different things like that, okay? So as we look at these things, it's important that this isn't about equity or equality. This is about responsibility in office, just different responsibilities, not better, not worse, but it's a res- it's, even, it's equal that way. It's just got its office. It's things that we're to do. So he goes on, she, uh, Titus, uh, receiving this from Paul, goes on and says, look, older women, likewise, that they be respected, right, reverent, in behavior, not slanderers. And this is important, this word in the Greek. This idea is false accusers. This word is diablos in the Greek, diablos in the Greek. That's the word that we know means what? Devil. They're not to be devil-tongued. They're not to be speaking. The devil was what? The fa- and is the father of all what? Lies. Older women are not to speak in a way that would be diabolos, that would be speaking as the devil or things that have to do with the devil that way, like lies, uh, all that, everything that would be caught in that, false teaching, false accusing, all that that would go with that. Why would Paul write this to Titus and begin with the mouth or the tongue. Why would he go to this? And husbands, you better not look anywhere but right at me. Don't you look at your wife. Don't you move because they're watching you. You want to eat. You bet, come on now. You better sit still. I see the fear of your eyes. No, we can joke about that, but but let's, let's be sober here in this, in this regard. He, he's saying here, because of those days, what would happen is that older women were considered women that had beyond their, their, their time or bearing of children. That means that the older women, as Scripture would understand in context, are women where their children had already grown up. And therefore, they would either be like in what we would say college today or pre-college years, or they would be heading out to employ, you know, whatever, okay? So these are women that have had children that have been raised up that way. So now what do they find themselves doing? Sitting at home, possibly becoming what? Idle. This is what Paul's after. This is what he's going to uh, really warn Titus to make sure he's teaching sound doctrine so that when you have an older woman, she doesn't enter into this because the word of God will cleanse her and and prevent her from from doing these things. It's no different with men, quite honestly, is it? When David was uh, going out, it was time when the kings went out. David didn't go out, did he? No, he stayed home. He was idle. 
What did he do? Because he was idle, he began to look on another woman and lust for her, okay? Then what did he do? He turned around and says, lust's not enough. I'm going to take action because he had so much idle time. And then what did he do? Then he murdered. Then he murdered. Do you see, idle, what? I'll give you a proverb that we say in our, our culture. It's not biblical, but it's, it's accurate. It's just not a biblical axiom. But if I said to you, an idle mind is the devil's workshop, playground, you got it. We all know it. Where do you think that came from? That understanding came from the Bible because there's no room for idleness. At, the, at this point, there's seasons. I, as, as women, because we're talking about older women here, as that season changes for you, where your children grow up and they begin to move out or they begin to stay home until they're married or whatever they do, the requirements that you once had to uh, certainly teach and to be incredibly invested, you know, that's a lot different when they're one years old, isn't it? That's a lot different than when they're 20, right? Not that they don't need that love or that encouragement. That never changes. But the amount of time and holding, uh, feeding, all those things changes. That season changes, well, what's he pointing out here? That during that season change, there's a temptation to do what? Become idle. And that's not good. Instead, they should be thinking about things that are what? Kingdom-focused, Christian-focused, their father's business. Not just sitting home, not just being idle, because he's going to talk about that. He's going to say, in addition, yes, there's still to be homemakers and all that. That's not, a, that's not negating that. But they're not to be idle. Because if they're idle, what that's going to do, and we're going to read it right here, not given to much wine. The very next thing he says happens is when you have that kind of idleness on your hand and that season hasn't sunk in of how it's changed, one of the things that happens is you begin to have a glass of wine. Now, I don't want any of you watching that Real Housewives nonsense. I've never watched it, but I, I see the commercials, you know, like you probably have. I'll tell you what. Tell me one of the tell me a sitcom or something today where they've got a woman, okay, that's their kids are usually older. You pray that they're older like that. What do they always have in their hands? A glass of wine. There's nothing wrong biblically with having a glass of wine with dinner. There's nothing wrong. A little vino, that's not a sin. But when you turn around and you beca- because you have nothing else to do, you begin to just consume alcohol. You know what that makes you? That makes you a drunkard, according to scripture. That's what that makes you. I mean, I know that may not be popular to say today, but that's the reality. That's not God's design. God's design is not idleness. God's design is instead of taking that time to go and refold the laundry again or re, re, you know, reset the plants in the garden again, to get out and serve the Lord, whatever way God has you to do that. That's what he's saying, older women, that that season has changed. Don't fall into idleness. Don't sit home and just start drinking glasses of wine and become a drug. No, no, no. Don't fall into these temptations, right? Why? Because God has got a plan for you, older women. God has got a big plan for you. Look what all, we're going to see seven things that, that God is going to call out by these older women to teach other women. And if you're not doing that, who's going to do that? We're a generation away at any one time from complete biblical literacy. So who's going to do it? If, if you're off drinking or if you're off idle at home and just sitting doing the things that you need to do in the house, but you're not actually engaged, what's, what's going to happen here? Well, he's, he goes through this list. He says, first, they're teachers of good things. That means that they teach 
godliness or goodness. They themselves are examples of this. Not only are they teaching it audibly like, hey, honey, you shouldn't do this. or you know, And it's not just their own children, by the way. This is not written that way. This is written to women in general, older women, to younger women, whether they're in the church, whether they're in other places. You, you, how many of you remember growing up? I remember this. When if I rode my, you know, some of you remember what a big wheel is? Remember those big wheels? Those were awesome. You'd ride those big wheels right in the road, right? Not that you should have, but you did. Or maybe that's just me and I'm confessing. I'm not sure which one. But anyway, you did it and you rode it. And then what? Remember that cool thing that you'd pull on the side? Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I'm getting a little caught up in the example. But anyway, you turn around and do that. Your big wheel would come out. And inevitably, one of my neighbors, whether it was to the left, across, front, Matt, get out of the road. What are you doing? Boy, you better get out of the road. What are you thinking? You're going to get killed or hit by a car. And if my mother walked out there at that moment, she didn't go, how dare you talk to my son like that? You know what she said? Thank you. Boy, you ought to get, you're, come in the house. You're gonna, and we know what's going to happen from there. The SWAT, right? It hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm not so sure about that. But you, you got corrected, right? You, do you see how far we've come from that? So, so far, and, you, and yet we think it's good, and yet we've seen since the 1960s a decline in spiritual morality, and morality in general, even for unbelievers, we've seen a decline. Obviously, it wasn't as terrible, and God was right. But he goes back and he says that this was a good thing, that women would get involved. No, 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 don't do this, honey. And, you know, to another younger woman and put her hand, hey, don't do these things. Or, hey, hey, can I tell you about this? Or, hey, you know, when I do this or I do that, these are the, this is how I do it. Or, you know, all the things. I don't know what all of the women talk. <laughs> so I'm just giving examples here. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get corrected by the older woman afterwards. We just don't say those kind of things. Okay, I'm sure. Um, but he, he goes out and says that in verse 4, that they admonish the young women, right? Do you know what that word admonish means? I love the Greek. It's so awesome. It means to recall to one's senses. So just think about that for a minute, older women. What is that telling you? When you're doing that, the people that you're recalling to their senses, what were they not in? They were not in their senses. They were not in their right, what do we say? Mind. That's what you are. I see some mothers turning going, see, now you know why I do what I do. No. <laughs> older women, remember it was love. There's love in there, remember? Agape love. Older men, remember agape love, okay? Well, what we see here is you're to admonish, you're to recall one to their senses. Now he's going to go through the senses. That's why it's important that you're just not idle. You're not just sitting home. You're not to, because there's a, there's a plan of purpose for you, and God wants to use you. He wants you to be around other people, around women's in the church, in different places. He doesn't want you just sitting home like that, uh, just alone, you know, by your, you know, that way. Look, look what he goes on to say. He says, uh, to love their husbands. The very first thing that the young women are being admonished and to recall their senses is to love their husbands. Isn't that, isn't that sad that the church has to be told to love your husband? That's really sad. But we need to hear that. And he lists it in order of priority. Why is that? Why is it even back in Genesis when Eve and, and Adam were receiving the correction that God had to turn and say, you're, you're, you will no longer be turned from your The idea was that in the Hebrew that the, her head was turned away from her husband, listening to someone or something else. The idea is the, the turning to the husband there. And now we see it in scripture. That, that's, that's one of the most important things. <laughs> Ladies, I, I was sharing with first service. I'll share it with you too. You may not understand entirely the blessing when you turn around 
and you turn towards or you love your husbands. That, that is so powerful. Now, I get it. Some of, some of the guys, you know, we're not good with our words. We're not very, you know, verbose. We don't talk. About, but that underlying self, I don't know what to call it, that, that, that enjoying that love, that security, that idea of building up the helpmate, it is so powerful in a man's life, so powerful in a man's life to be able to direct and help as a helpmate, direct with the leading of the Lord, the steps that God has for that man to take and for you to come alongside and to be able to say, you can do it. You can do it in Christ Jesus. You're not alone. You can do it, husband. It begins by turning your affection and your love to your husband first. The second thing we see here, to love their children. Notice the order of priority. It's not to love the children first. It's really not. It's to love your husband first. Too often and too many times today, we see the breakdown of the family. And one of the reasons for the breakdown in the family is the love of child more than the love of spouse. Remember, more is caught than taught. If you love your child more than you love your husband or your wife, or they put them in an order of precedent that way, then how, in any, how can you possibly demonstrate? Remember, these are young boys and girls that one day will, as the Lord leads, become young men and young women. And they're going to learn these things. But if it's not demonstrated for them, how will they know? Do you ever sit with your wife or your, your husband, if your wife, and you sit together? Do you ever hold your husband's hand sitting on the couch? I'm not talking about inappropriate public displays of affection. I'm talking about holding your husband's hand or giving your ladies, you give your husband a kiss. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good for your kids to see what real love is and to not be afraid of that, to see the tenderness of that. That's important. Do you know that today in churches, the divorce rate is almost equal to the divorce rate of the world? Do you know that so many times the problem we see with youth and different things going on is because a breakdown of the family, because mom or dad is missing in action, or because dad isn't being loved, or mom isn't being loved and prioritized over the kids. Therefore, only what's poured in can be poured out. Moms run on E, and so do dads. So do husbands. They need to be poured into so that they can pour out. This is God's definition. This is how God has desired and designed this. He says, but you're to love your children. So many problems would be avoided today. So many young girls have daddy issues today. So many young men have mommy issues and daddy issues today. Because this passage is either not taught in their church or they've never lived it out. Older women teach the younger women, love your husbands, love your children. You're commanded by God to do that. Titus was commanded to teach that from the pulpit. No different than I'm commanded today, 2,000 years, to teach the very same thing. To be discreet. Okay, we're making our ways. Number three, to be discreet out of seven. What does that mean? Self-controlled. You're to be discreet. Younger women and older women, that way you example it. Chaste, number four. What's that word mean, right? We don't, we don't walk around saying, are you being chased today? No, you would think somebody's running after you, right? No, that's not, that's, not what, that's not what it's saying here, right? My accent, my New York accent. No, what's, what this is saying is, are you modest? 
And I've got to call this out too. Younger women, older women, are you wearing outfits that cause men, whether you want to acknowledge or not, to look at you and instead of looking at your face, look at other attributes or aspects of your body? That's not good. It's not good either way, by the way, for men or women to do that. But it doesn't just stop there. The Greek word here, this idea of modest, isn't just the outward appearance, right? But it's also speaking of the heart. Is there a modesty, spiritually speaking, in your heart? Are there things, the way you speak, the things you do, the way you carry yourself? Are you acting? Are you, are you being modest and righteous within the Lord? And are you teaching the younger women to do the same thing? To have a, a self-understanding that God has blessed uh, the women and the ladies with beauty. And that beauty is because you are a daughter of the living God. You are all perfect. You need to hear that. Because I know there's magazines and all this nonsense that tries to, it tries to break young girls down and tries to make them feel ugly or ashamed of their bodies or shaming them in so many different ways. I spent so much time in counseling with different people of, uh, going through some of these things. And, I, and when I'm privileged to be able to sit with a young girl and, and obviously I have somebody else in the room like that, I always look, I say, you need to know you're beautiful. Not in an inappropriate way, but you are beautiful in Christ Jesus. You're, you're the apple of his eye. You, you're perfect. There's no, you're not a... You're not an accident. You're not an accident. There's a modesty that comes into that. How you carry yourself. Do you have that worth in Christ? Do you acknowledge that? See, I think today so many times women settle. God's second best, third, maybe even last best for them. Instead of God's very best. Because they don't understand the way that Jesus Christ sees them. Oh, I wish, ladies, you would see yourself as Jesus sees you. Corinthians says you see yourself only dimly at this point. All believers were dimly viewed, but one day we will be seen as we've been seen. One day you will all see how beautiful and perfect you are, and you will sit back and say, why did I look at myself that way for so many years? Worrying about the spot in my hair, the clothes I was, that and the other, the... Make all that stuff. I don't even want to go into it all. All of that stuff. And you never once just saw the beauty and the radiance as Scripture talks about you as precious gems, bright and shiny and beautiful and together and complete. That's how he sees you, ladies. And older women, you have to teach the younger women these things. They don't know this because the world is beating them down. They don't know how beautiful they are. You need to tell them you are amazingly beautiful in Christ. And I'm not just talking about physically. I mean even spiritually. He goes on to say homemakers. Remember at that time, I already talked about this. It means in the Greek, workers of the home. It means that when they're in the house, that they, that they would take Colossians, you know, do all things heartily unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. Workers in the home, it's work. Men, we got to recognize it. it's work. They go to work many times outside the home, and then they come home and do what? Work again. You can have three or four jobs, husbands. It doesn't come close. Trust me, I, I, I did it for like a week. I'm done. I got nothing left. 
Like I was done in a week. Like I was like, you know, anybody wrestling here? You kind of tap out. I'm done. I'm done. Give, you know, mama, mama, you know. I remember reading this, and I remember going back after I did that with you. My mom was still alive at the time. And I remember going back and giving my mom the biggest hug and kiss. I said, Mom, I love you. I had no idea all that you did. My mom and dad got divorced at a very young I had no idea all that my mom did in raising. Granted, I grew up with my dad and my mom together in some ways because we would see each other every weekend and things like that. But I had no idea all that she did. I just, Mom, I love you. Thank you so much for all of the sacrifices that you've made. You, in part, made me who I am today. Mothers, you do that. You bless your children. Fathers, you do that too. Good. If I said to you good, it's going to mean something different than, you know, good. You're good. Paul says there is none that are good. Romans 1 through 3, right? What does this mean here? Again, it means moral. Do you realize morality has been up to try to be redefined today? Relativism has taken over. The idea of an absolute truth, absolute morality. You know, I shared with First Service also, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, whether it was my Aunt Mary or even my wife, I think of Lisa, uh, she was from the Bronx, and I remember going in um, to see her because I met her in college, and we went to her house, and her parents were having a nice dinner. And uh, they brought out, you know, I think it was China, different things like that. They had a big curio or China cabinet. And they brought out this China, and they set these plates around the dinner table. I'd never seen anything like this. And I, they, they had all these, uh, you know, they had multiple glasses. Like there was a wine glass. I, that I knew, you know, I knew what that was. I, you know, a dinner, a glass. Okay, but I had never... That was then, by the way. Not now. I don't want you to. I'm not violating First Timothy three here. No, but a, gl- a glass for water. I think they called that a goblet. I don't even remember the terms. But a glass for water, a, a glass for uh, uh, like a glass of wine, or and then so, uh, the dessert glass. I said three glasses. That's a lot of. All I'm thinking is who's going to wash these things. That's all I'm thinking about. That's a lot of glasses. And then on top of that, you look under that, and there's a plate, and there's a plate in a plate in a plate. There's like three of them. And then on top of that, you look to the left and right, and there was a fork. It was a really small one. And then there was a little bit. It was like a baby fork, mama fork. You know, I, I, you know, the, 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 you know, just right, the porridge, the whole thing where I'm going. Anyway, there was these forks there. I know what they are. Obviously, an appetizer fork, a salad fork, and then obviously a dinner fork. And then they had spoons, a dessert spoon, a soup spoon, a coffee spoon. And this whole thing, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is amazing. Well, how does this tie into morality? Because... She was being taught what it was to prepare a table, to set a nice table like that, to show respect and love. Her grandmother came from Cuba. They fled Cuba before Castro got into um, to, uh, power there. And when they fled there to get here and barely by their lives, her father was 20-something years old. The grandmother, Buela, she was, you know, probably, I don't know, 50. When she came here, they slept under a table, the boys, four of them, in one room, the family room, under the table, and that was their, they would put a curtain over it. We've forgotten. But there was, in spite of all the simplicity of that, where you think, boy, you grew up very humble, this, that, and the other. Do you know what? Every single time before dinner, 
which would be Lisa's grandfather. Before he, he ended up driving truck, he did whatever he could to earn money to bring so that they could survive because they flew, fled, again, communism and Castro and that. When they got here, you know, didn't speak English. You know, I think the only word he knew how to say uh, was Coca-Cola. Seriously, Coca-Cola. He came to New York City. It's all he could say. Got a job washing dishes. The sons, the kids were all working. They were, everybody was trying to do what they could do. And I remember her telling me the story. And, and I heard from a boy, I heard from grandma. She told me the same thing about what it was like. And she said, we just... We didn't have much. You know, we would take and boil animal bone to get a broth from it because it's all we had. We didn't have meat, but we would do that for sustenance. I was, wow. And then she said, you know, and I said, Lisa, I said, well, your, your grandmother, even when we went to Miami to visit her, she'd always set such a beautiful table. Everything was always so perfect. And I said, how, you know, she says, says, my dad always said, even from when he came to America, even when they had nothing, before grandpa would get home, she would go out and she would, she would go and take a shower. She would put on a nice outfit. She would fix herself up so that when he would come home, the dinner table would be set and he could sit and she would sit with him and eat. And that meant so much to him. Even though by our standards, they had nothing financially. They were so rich in love. And that's that's what I understand when I understand morality. When we think of morals and right and wrong and things we do, how many of those things, older women, you define yourselves who that is, remember some of those things that you were taught, you were given, a certain way of life, things you would say, things you wouldn't say, not speaking like a, with inappropriate words, curse words, things like that. Never come out of a lady's mouth. Never come out of a lady's mouth that way. Morality. Today, oh no. Oh no, today women uh, are sometimes more using curse words than men that way. It was a different time. It didn't have to be a different time. It's morality. It's with morals. Since the 60s, it's been downward spiraling. I know our time's getting away from us here. Obedient to their own husbands. I know you guys wish you could just cross that one out in your Bible there, but it means is subject. It also means willingly. It's not by coercion. It's not by being forced. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Do you see it? That the audio and video matches. That when you look at an older woman and the younger woman being taught, that the, that the audio and video match. That it may not misrepresent God or distort God's word. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Now we're going on to the young men. And I know some of you ladies, young ladies, are going to be like, wait a minute, we got seven things, and the older women have to teach us all. And guys get one, younger guys get one thing. What? Well, listen to what it's being commanded of them, or, or, or Titus to, to do here. Titus is being told, likewise, exhort the young men to be what? Sober-minded. That means with self-control. Please notice with me, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. He's saying, young men... You need to have self-control in all things. Titus, teach them that that's what the word of God says. Now, I want you to think, older men here, I want you to think about, I include myself in that, think about what it was like when we were boys. Think about the hormones, right? Think about the lust, the whole thing. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You know, before Christ and everything like that. You, you understand. Think about all those things. He's saying, have self-control. Why is that so important? Because how many times do we see young men go out with young women and tell these young women, I love you, 
They even claim to be Christians. This is the church I'm talking about. I'm not talking about outside the church. This is, I love you. And yet they love you so much that they're asking you or trying to push you to do something that's contrary to the word of God, as though that's real love. Instead of recognizing the fact that they love themselves more than they love God. And that's evident by the fact that they're turning around and asking these young women to do things that would be sinful and contrary to the word of God. That's what he's also talking about. That all of these things, self-control, lust, drink, all of it. You fit, no, he wouldn't put it in here if it wasn't possible. Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In other words, that word pattern is if you took metal and heated it up, almost like a stamp, and you took something hard and you pushed into it, and it became impression by it. As though that impression was to stick there and it couldn't be changed. That's what he's saying here, that, that these things would become so impressioned inside of you, young men, that you would envelop a pattern of good works, of what? Fruit. This is a big deal. This is why you got one, young men. You got one because it's huge. It's a big deal and it covers everything. Self-control. Ladies, accept nothing less. Ladies, accept nothing less than a man that's young that is demonstrating self-control, sober-minded. He goes on to say, in doctrine, teaching, you'd be an example of God's life, showing integrity, reverence, respect, incorruptibility, can't be corrupted. Uh, your character stands that way. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. You're not speaking, young men, in a way that's filth. Filthy, that one who has an opponent may not be ashamed, having nothing evil to save you. Please notice he says who has an opponent. He's telling Titus, pastors, you're going to have opponents. You're going to have people that are going to sling all kinds of mud your way. That's not the problem. The problem is you better have a life or live a life that silences the critics. Your character needs to speak more volume than what's being assessed or accused of you that way. That's what it is for pastors. It's not that, you know, guys don't blow it. It's not like younger guys don't blow it. But at the end of the day, Titus teach them that their conduct matters. Again, not that they're perfect and sinless, but they understand that Christ has given them the ability to overcome in these things. And that they would have nothing evil to say of you. Exhort. Build up bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, that not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all, all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. And what is he saying here? Again, you got to remember back at the time in context, millions of Roman slaves, millions of Roman slaves, slavery, huge going on, working off debt, things like that. As we close with this passage, that's what he's drawing the attention to. Millions of people, but he says bondservants, men and women that were willing to do that. Willing, like we are bondservants for Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a full-time, lifetime commitment. And he goes on to say that they would be obedient to the masters. It, it's going to be a spiritual application here, but he's using it on the earth to give a temporal application to say what we would know today is employee-employers. If you own a business, you're an employer, you hire employees. What he's effectively saying here is that you're, you're I'm going to say it my, the best way I know. If we can't obey the authority, but
before us. What makes any of us think that we will be able or do anything different when it comes to God's word and the invisible God that's not before us, that we can't touch and experience that way physically, you know? And, and how do we think it's going to be different? God places men uh, in authority uh, and, and women in authority in different capacities in workplace. To, and, and if we think that we can't honor and, and respect and also obey those things, why do we think we're going to do it with Jesus Christ? Why do we think it's going to be different? I think sometimes we fool ourselves into realizing that's the real issue itself. It's, and that's what he points out here. It's rebellion, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. I mean, sometimes, if we're all being honest, we've gone to work, hopefully not anymore, not, you know, BC days before Christ, right? You'd go to work and, you know, the boss say, I'd like you to do this, that, and the other. I want you to, you know, you know shovel or mop or whatever, you know, whatever you did at the job. And, and you're like, okay, uh, you know, and you... That's what he's describing here. It's all-inclusive. It's rebellious. He's saying he doesn't want that. There, there should be no answering back. Why? He, he goes on to, to the idea of not pilfering, right? Do you know what that means in the Greek? It's really interesting. It means to set apart for self. We're not to set ourselves apart for us. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? That means when we go to work, and, and we use the modern-day understanding of pilfering, if I asked all of you what pilfering means, you'd say it means what? Stealing means to steal. But isn't that exactly what he's implying? He's implying very clearly that when we don't, when we don't honor that authority, when we don't do those things, in essence, that's exactly what we're dealing. We're stealing from God. He's saying here that when we turn around and hold and set apart for self, whether that's opinion, understanding, whatever, and we're not obedient to those that God has placed in authority that way. We'll talk about that, you know, again, more next week, but we can look at Romans 13, understanding all the aspects of that. But what he's talking about here is, is that you're saying, how, how many of us understand that when you go to work, you take a piece of paper, you might take a paper clip, you consider that an employee benefit, right? I, I, some of you kind of laughed, you smirked. Yeah. Some of you maybe used a pen, took the pen with you. It's just part of your employee benefits package, right? Do you know how many billions of dollars a year are used to why costs of goods and services are so high to cover for the misappropriation or misuse of things like that? Time? Are we using our time effectively when we're on the clock for the Lord? Or are we doing other things that we have no business doing when we're supposed to be doing this? I know these things are heavy and we're closing with these things, but, but maybe they'll be top of mind for us when we walk out of here into the mission field to think about how are we doing that? Are we all in? In all aspects, when we're with individuals, are we all in with them, focused on them? Are we still looking at our phones? Are we all in at our employers? Are we, are we engaged to do the right things? Uh, you know, uh, wherever our boss or those in authority, are we all in that way? Or is it sort of that balancing act? That's what he's talking about here. He says, but showing all good fidelity, that means all honesty and trust, integrity that way, that they may do what? Adore. Um, Adding beauty, that's what that word means, that they may, you may be adding beauty that the doctrine of God, of our Savior in all things, that what he's saying here is that the word of God won't be misrepresented, that you would actually be adding beauty to the God because they would see that epistle being lived out before you. And, you'd rec and it would also point to Jesus Christ. And he allows others to see this, that Jesus is Lord, bringing honor to our Lord and God in perfect beauty. That's what he's saying here. We've 
I'm going to ask you all to stand. We've gone over. We're, we normally have a closing song, but because of our time, uh, I'll ask you all just to stand at this point. We'll pray. But I think, I think we all understand these principles, these things that we see here, these are good. We need to hear these things. We're going to go to chapter 3. He's going to say, remember or remind them. We constantly need to be reminded of these things. If not, we're going to fall right back into the worldly lusts and the worldly activities, and we're not going to turn around and recognize the fact that we have just compromised and moved further and further away from God. What is occupying your heart, your mind, and your time right now? Friends, that is your God. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for these words. These words are not meant to be uh, punitive. Lord, these words are corrective. They're meant to empty us out of all sin and all unrighteousness to be that special people, Lord, to be those children, Lord, and to think that you wrote this originally, God, to the Cretans, people that were known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, Lord. You rebuke them so sharply, and yet, God, your desire to do that was to draw them closer to you, Jesus, deeper and madly in love. Lord, that's my prayer in our heart for, for all of us this morning. We all come to your altar this morning, and we confess we've blown it. We just, we just laid the, those things down at the cross. The world behind us, the cross before, death to self, Lord. Death to carnality. Every day we're to do these things. Take up that cross. Lord, I pray your word has done that, as we said, Lord, in the beginning, as you overheard and you led, we, that medical procedure in our hearts here, that as we walk out of here, we're walking out different, forever changed. Lord, I pray you protect us and seal us. Lord, that we would not have spot or blemish. I pray that these qualities of a sound church, Lord, you would... Do everything needed to make sure that this church, this body of Christ that's gathered individually and corporately here, Lord, that we would be followers of you, Jesus, of your word. And we wouldn't be looking for idols and those things that would draw us away from you instead of intimacy with you. Jesus Christ, protect us from ourselves. Heal us from our wrongdoings. Restore us, Lord, and equip us. Because, yes, Lord, the best is yet to come. But, Lord, if we're not following these things, if we're not living after you, we're simply misrepresenting your word and we're misrepresenting you, God. Forgive us for that, Lord Jesus. Equip us now this morning here. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you. I hope to see you at prayer as the Lord should lead. Six o'clock. I love you all and God bless you. <laughs>